you would, turn to Mark chapter 2, verse 23. We're going to read the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 as we get the setting for our sermon this morning. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath." Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Let's pray as we get into this passage this morning. Father, once again, we pray that as we look into these stories given to us, recounted to us by Mark and his gospel, that you might open our eyes, open our ears. But Lord, most importantly, and above and beyond what happens in the lives of the Pharisees, that you would open our hearts. Help us to take to heart that which is found here, to understand what Jesus was teaching, why Jesus was teaching it, and the difference it will make in our lives if we put it into practice. God, I pray that you'll help us not only to learn, but to be changed by your spirit, by your word, as we look to honor and glorify you this morning. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The Sabbath. You just mentioned the Sabbath, and even to born-again Christians, a lot of questions are engendered by that. Am I required to keep the Sabbath? What does it mean to keep the Sabbath? Here's a good question. Why are we here on Sunday morning if we believe that the Sabbath has any bearing on our lives at all? Shouldn't we have been here yesterday? What does the Sabbath have to do with our lives? And if we're not careful... Most Christians, to be honest, when I get into discussions with them today on the Sabbath and what it's for and how it works and should we or shouldn't we observe the Sabbath as part of the Ten Commandments, the biggest questions are, what can I and what can I do? It's not about God. It's not about relationship. It's about what are the restrictions on me, if any, should there be any, and how do I get around some of those? So as we look at the Sabbath in the book of Mark, life wasn't much different back then. Except for one key thing. The Sabbath was a key part of the community in Israel. Two things that that, that reflected on God's people. Two big things that helped people look and say, this is Israel, these are God's people. Number one, the sign of circumcision. Number two, the keeping of the Sabbath. And so as we look at this this morning, we need to remember how important this is. And Mark uses this as he concludes this whole section of stories on conflict between Jesus Christ and the religious rulers. It started way back in chapter 2, verse 1. You remember in chapter 2, verse 1, where the paralytic is brought to Jesus and they lower him through the roof? We love that story in Sunday school and it, never, it still never ceases to amaze us. Why doesn't Jesus just heal him? 
Why does he look at this guy laying on the bed that can't get up and said, Son, your sins be forgiven thee. And you think the guy's looking at him and say, That's not why I came. But deeper than that is the fact that Jesus Christ is showing that not only can he heal, but he is God. He has the prerogative. He has the power to forgive sins. And so that story followed right behind that story is the story of Matthew, of Levi, and his calling. Because the same God who can forgive sin is the one who can extend forgiveness to those who need it most. So he publicly calls a tax collector. And then he goes and has dinner with him and all of his friends and cohorts. Sinners the whole bunch. And so now the Pharisees are really appalled. He's claimed to have the power of God to forgive sin. But he hangs out with sinners, with publicans, with prostitutes. What's he doing? That's not the way that religious leaders behave in Jesus' day. And then you go from that to the fact they begin watching him. Not watching him like we would want to watch him. Can you imagine being able to watch Jesus in the time of his ministry? I would love to watch just to find out, how do I react to things? How do I maneuver through life? How do I walk in the feet of the master? But that's not what the Pharisees are doing. They want to destroy Jesus. He is actually threatening their authority. So as they begin to watch him, they're watching for anything that they can criticize. And suddenly they realize that his disciples aren't fasting. So they have this whole talk about why aren't your disciples fasting? And they don't want an answer. It's an accusation. And Jesus explains to them who he is again. Remember what Mark's gospel is all about? He's going to talk, verse 1, about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What does that mean? It means he can forgive sin. It means he reaches out to sinners to extend forgiveness. It means that he's the great bridegroom in that story. And those that are part of the bridal party can't be grieving and fasting. They should be rejoicing in his presence. And there's a lesson there for us. We ought to be rejoicing in the presence of Jesus Christ. There ought to be joy in our relationship with him. And that's not enough for the Pharisees. They continue watching. And so we get to our story today and they're going to find his disciples eating grain on the Sabbath. And they're going to criticize And then they're going to set Jesus up. Whether they provide the opportunity or knew it would be there, they're watching when there's a man in the synagogue with a withered hand. What will Jesus do in this occasion? So all of this is going on. And we need to realize that as Jesus comes through here, his whole allegiance, his whole commitment is to the gospel. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 says that Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God, that the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe in the gospel. As a part of that gospel, he's going to teach service and sacrifice. And he's going to give the ultimate sacrifice as he gives his life a ransom for many. And so Jesus is doing all this, and you would think, wouldn't he be loved? He's healing people, not just key important people. People who, everyone who came to his door, remember that story? All night long, he's healing people. Jesus is doing wonderful things, and in chapter 2, verse 7, he's labeled a blasphemer. In chapter 2, verse 16, he's labeled a friend of sinners, and that was not in a good way. In chapter 2, verse 18, he's labeled an apostate from the religious customs of the day because his disciples aren't even fasting. And then in chapter 2, 24, we're going to see today, they're going to go after him for being a Sabbath breaker. Now we look at all those things and we say, well, maybe the Sabbath breaker isn't that big a deal. Well, we need to understand as we go through this why they are making such a big deal about the Sabbath. Because as they look at Jesus Christ, it's amazing that it's the religious leaders of his day that are going after him. And they're going after him because, again, I said their authority has been threatened. They're going after him because he claims to be the Son of God. And to them, that's that's the height of blasphemy. 
And it tells us in John chapter 10 that the Jews picked up stones to stone him and Jesus Christ questioned them. And said, for, what, what, for which of my good works do you stone me? And how it's not for your good works that we stone you. It's because you claim to be God. And so he goes on in that chapter in verses 37 and 38 of John chapter 10 and said, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Jesus Christ looks at us and says, can you not see? Do you not get it? And don't we kind of lean on that same kind of idea? Because Jesus knew they weren't going to get it. But remember the, the, the rich man in Lazarus? The rich man looks up in hell, and he begs Abraham to do what? Have God send somebody back to the people that he has still here on earth so that he could tell them, this place is real. Don't come to this place. And what did Abraham tell him? Let them believe Moses and the prophets because if they don't believe the truth that was already given, even if somebody was raised from the dead, they wouldn't believe it. And you say, really? Yeah, think about that. If you had a family member who's been dead for five or ten years who suddenly shows up preaching the gospel, don't you think it would have an impact? Don't you think it would change your life? Now, don't picture him falling apart in the grave. He looked like he did when he died, okay? And he comes through, and he starts preaching the gospel. But you know what? The Pharisees had the Son of God standing before him, doing miracles like no one had ever seen, preaching in such a way that the people looked and say, he has authority like we've never seen. And you know what they did? They hardened their hearts. And so all of this is going on in this story of Jesus as we get to chapter 2, verses 23 through 28. Now, in the beginning, as I began putting this together, I had got really creative, and I entitled the first part of the sermon, Eating Grain. And I thought, you know what? It's not about the grain. Now, it took me half a week studying it to realize it's not about the grain. I should have picked that up earlier. But it's all about not the grain, but the nature of the Sabbath. What's going on here as we get to these disciples eating grain? Because, again, in our Western mindset, we're kind of indifferent often toward observance of the Sabbath, aren't we? And we get more indifferent every day. You remember, and I know it's Sunday, not Saturday, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but you remember when stuff wasn't open on Sunday? What is it that's not open on Sunday now? Chick-fil-A. And New York State's trying to change that, by the way. Okay, so you, you've got everything, pretty much everything's available. In fact, not only is everything available, but I remember as a kid, you just did, you didn't play sports. Little League and stuff didn't happen on Sunday. When's it happen now? Sundays, if you ask parents, Sunday's their favorite time. What's happened? Well, we don't have the same appreciation for what God's trying to do with the Sabbath as the people of Israel did in their day. It was a big deal, and it's still a big deal if you go over to Israel today. Talk to Diane if you don't believe me. She was just over there. The Sabbath is still a big deal, and they shut things down. And they do it for maybe the right motive. I don't know if they're hitting the right mark when they're doing it anymore. But God established that, and we just, until we understand how important this was to the Jewish people, you don't understand why eating grain in the field becomes such a problem for the Pharisees. Now, Should it have been a problem? We need to look at the Sabbath. What was the Sabbath? Where was it instituted? A lot of people that don't want to give God a day and make it his look back and say, the Sabbath is part of the the law. And we're not under the law anymore. You know where the Sabbath started? Turn in your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 2. Law is not given until Exodus, okay? So keep that in mind. Genesis chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1, 
And again, put yourself into Genesis. Most of you have started, most of you probably, if you do any Bible reading, have read Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Those are the most read chapters in all the Bible. January 1st, we are on it, we're going. But put yourself in that context. Can you imagine what it would have been like to observe creation? The God of the universe creating everything from nothing. And at the end of all of that, he looks and he says at the end of chapter 1, and it was all good. And so we get to chapter 2 and verse 1, and right on the heels of all of this exciting demonstration of God's power and creation, it says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. Think about that for a minute. Why did God rest? Was God exhausted from creation? Was creating the world too much for the energies of an almighty, sovereign God? No, God's about to make a statement. And his statement we're going to find as we go through Scripture, and what God is about to do is not as much for him as it's for us. For the man that he just created in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, when God created man. And so we get to verse 3, and this is what it says. So God blessed the seventh day. Is the Sabbath important to God? Six days he worked creating the world, and he said, on the seventh day I rested, and God put a special blessing on that day. In what way? He goes on further and says, he made it holy. And again, holy, it's set apart. It's sanctified. It's supposed to be a day that is different from all of the other days, all the other six days. Now, it is interesting. He doesn't really have an American mindset to work. God worked how many days? How many of you want a day away a job? Some of you may, but most of us don't want to work six days a week. It's five days. We're trying to make it four days. If we could make it four half days, we'd be even better as Americans. We want to get paid for doing nothing. But back at God said, you're going to work for six days. But there's a day when you need to come apart. There's a day that I'm setting apart as sanctified and holy. A day that is going to be for me. And it's going to remind you of the fact that on that day I rested from all the work that I had done in creation. So when God established the Sabbath, it was for our benefit. How many of you like to rest? Okay, this is probably bad, but I was thinking this morning, I get a little sidetracked during the fall. I shouldn't watch all the football I do, but I watch some football every once in a while, especially if the Bills are on. The Bills were supposed to be on this afternoon. Sorry, I'm not allowed to talk to Bear about football here. We get each other in trouble on Sundays. But they canceled the game today. And you know the first thing I thought? I can go home and get a nap. I can rest. I love rest. You know, naps are wasted on children who don't want them. I love having my naps and getting some rest. And God took a whole day and he said, you know what I want you to do? I want you to rest from your labors. Now, I don't want you to just rest for your labors. It becomes a day to reflect upon our relationship with the creator who put that day apart and set it apart. And so as, as we look at this, it happens that, that God established it. He blessed the day. He made it the seventh day holy. He rested on the seventh day. And then it becomes part of the whole law of Israel as they become his people. Look over at Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, God establishes for Israel the importance of the Sabbath day. Do you realize that of all the Ten Commandments, this is the longest commandment that is explained of the Ten The Sabbath day. Look at what he says beginning in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What does he mean by remember? 
He doesn't mean mean on Monday we think back and we go, oh, I missed the Sabbath. I need to remember that it was that day. He's saying, participate in what you're supposed to be doing. Don't do what you're not supposed to be doing because the Sabbath day has been set apart. It needs to be different. It needs to be sanctified in your eyes. He says in verse 9 of Exodus 20, Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. So as God establishes the Sabbath, how broad does he make this for his people in their land? If you're in Israel, you best not be working on Saturday. It's God's day. It's God's holy day sanctified and set apart. But Moses goes on. He doesn't just stop there. In verse 11, he says, For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So even as Moses establishes it as part of the law that God has given him, and it's God's law, it's God's commandments, as Moses explains that that to, to the people, he looks and he says, he looks back to creation. We do this because God established this. God decided at the very beginning, before any of the other laws, before any of the other 612 laws that are written in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you've got 365 thou shalt nots. I'm going to put it on a calendar one day, the thou shalt nots of the year, and every day of the year we'll have another thou shalt not. Well, before any of that came to being, God had established this day, this special day that's supposed to be kept in order for people to be right with him. And then Ezekiel tells us this about the Sabbath, because often, because of what we're going to talk about in a minute and what happened to the Sabbath, we look at the Sabbath as a burden. Oh, if I'm going to recognize what God set up and not work on one day, and there's all these things I, can and can't, I can't do, especially on that day, oh, I can't wait till it's over. And that's not what God was doing. You look at Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 12, and it tells us, Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. God gave the Sabbath day, especially to the people of Israel, as a sign that I'm your God and I care about you. It's for your benefit. We can look up other scripture. We won't have for time today, but look up the scripture where they talk about the purpose of the, of the Sabbath and why it's there. And in fact, Exodus chapter 35, as Moses is again going over some of the law with the people, he says, beginning in verse 1, Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that God has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on this day shall be put to death. How serious did God take the Sabbath? And he, remember the extension on that in the Ten Commandments? He said, it not only applies to you, but it applies to your family, it applies to your servants, it applies to the sojourner who's in the way, who's at your place. You don't work on the Sabbath. You remember it. You consecrate it. You do the things that we're going to talk about in a moment on those days. And even said in verse 3 of that passage, you shall kindle no fire in your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. You know what that means? Eat leftovers on the Sabbath. And you eat them cold. You don't make a fire. You don't cook all these meals. Isn't that kind of backwards to what we do? You know, what's the biggest, one of the, other than Friday nights, what are one of the biggest days for going out for, for meals? Sunday afternoon, if I preach too long, I know I'm in trouble because I'm already letting you out at noon and everybody else is beating you to the restaurants. 
But God looks and he says to his people, I want this to be such a day that your whole routine is different. And the reason for it is we need that day of rest, but God wanted us to reflect upon him. That's why by the time we get to Jesus' day, that's the day where they're all going to the synagogue. And you look at Jesus' busy ministry. I challenge you to go through the Gospels. Every time it talks about it being the Sabbath, almost without exception, it talks about, and Jesus went to the synagogue with his disciples. And most of the time, if you read deep enough and you you catch all of the Gospels together, you find out Jesus was teaching in the synagogue. Because that day of rest became not only a day of setting apart from our work, but setting it out unto God. It was a holy day. So it was a time of teaching. It was a time of worship. It was a time of gathering together to remember the Creator, our God. And so this is all taking place. The problem is the Mishnah and the rabbinic teaching had made it such a burden. In fact, it tells us that 39 classes of work were listed by the rabbinic teachings telling them they couldn't do things. And some of them made sense. You're not supposed to be plowing, hunting, butchering, those kind of things. But they also said you shouldn't be loosening a tied knot on the Sabbath. Not only that, you shouldn't sew more than one stitch. How many things can you fix with one stitch? Basically, don't sew up any holes on Sunday. And it went further than that. It even said, let me see if I can find it here. Uh, Don't write more than one letter. How much can you communicate with one letter of the alphabet? So the rabbinic teaching got so heavy and harsh on the people that they began to look at the Sabbath as a burden instead of a blessing. And there were other rules. It was forbidden to set a dislocated foot or a hand on Sunday. So don't break anything and don't dislocate anything on the Sabbath. It was forbidden to repair a fallen roof. Now, you could temporarily prop it up, but you couldn't repair it on Sunday. In fact, the teaching went as far as to say that if a building fell down on the Sabbath, enough rubble could be removed to discover if there were any victims, dead or alive. If alive on the Sabbath, you were, you were allowed to rescue them. If dead, they had to sit there till sunset. All of these teachings of the rabbis that were not really what the day was intended for. And so it brings us here not only to the nature of the Sabbath, but a violation of Sabbath. And I put law In quotations, because Jesus is about to correct what the Sabbath teaching was really all about. We get to that middle part of that verse, if you look back in Mark chapter 23, and it says, One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Now, what the disciples were doing was perfectly legal. It tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 25, if you're going through your neighbor's grain field and you're hungry, you were, you were able to glean some grain with your hands and eat it. Now, you couldn't take a sickle to it and harvest his, his harvest on him and take it away, but you could get enough to take care of you if you were hungry. And parallel passages as this tell us that as the disciples were walking along on the Sabbath, they were hungry. Now, how far were they walking? Were they already breaking rabbinic tradition? I have no idea. It doesn't tell us that. But it tells us that as they're doing that with the grain, the Pharisees are watching. And the Pharisees come up to them after they see them doing this with the grain, and they have a question for them. And again, we talked about this last week. Most of the questions of the Pharisees weren't really questions. They were accusations. They were rhetorical questions to kind of let you know you're not doing the right thing and you better start doing what's right. Because technically, if you were found in violation of the Sabbath, what was the penalty? You didn't get a ticket. 
You didn't get a slap on the wrist. You didn't even get a beating. They could put you to death. Now, in Jesus' day, they weren't putting very many people to death because of the Sabbath. They had to deal with the Romans. They had to get permission to do these things. But the law said that that's what they could do. And this passage is going to tell us that's exactly what they had in mind for Jesus. That's why they keep asking all these questions. So they see the disciples, and the disciples are eating this grain. And they begin by asking them, Look, why are you doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, look at Jesus' answer. The truth about the Sabbath. Verse 25. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Now, we look at this and we have to ask ourselves, because what's Jesus doing? Is it obvious why he's chosen this story to answer the Pharisees? You know, when I look at it, I'm like, you know, why didn't he just say, look, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, and I can have my followers do whatever they want. If it was a violation, I would let them know. Does he do that? He brings up this story about David. This story that unless you start doing some background on it, you don't really understand why Jesus even brings up this story. Couldn't he just answer them? But he brings up this story because... In a very interesting way, as the Pharisees are attacking him at the very heart of who he is, they're saying, you are a blasphemer who has no regard whatsoever for the law of God. And they keep seeing him do these things that are upsetting them and their laws, which are their laws, but not God's laws. And so as they look at Jesus Christ again, they're very upset with him. And normally, as Jesus answers in the Gospels, he answers on his own authority because of who he is. He's the Son of God. He doesn't need your permission or mine to do whatever he wants to do. And whatever he does is always right. Wouldn't it be nice to be that way? Everything I do is always right, never question. But here he is being questioned as the son of God who always does what's right. And instead this time of appealing to his own authority, what does he appeal to? He goes to the scriptures. The interesting thing about that, that's how the rabbis and the Pharisees were supposed to answer disputes and questions. And so Jesus takes them to their own scriptures. But I wish I could have been there. Think about his, his audience as he asks that question. He asks the question, have you never read what David did? Now, who's he talking to? The scribes, the Pharisees. What's their job? Their job is to know what that book said. Probably not the New Testament, but this part of the book. They were supposed to know what it said inside and out. Do you think they'd read the scriptures? Well, they'd read and rewritten some of the scriptures the way they'd written their laws. And so as Jesus looks at them, it's almost with a hint of sarcasm that he looks at the men who he knows. He said, haven't you read? He's using the same kind of tactic that they're using with him. He's accusing them not of not having read the scriptures, but what? Not having understood the scriptures. Do you understand why they hated him so much? Because what was the job of the scribes and the Pharisees? You, if you were the people of Israel weren't always smart enough to understand what God wanted you to do. So they took that word and they explained to you what? This is what God means by this. This is what you have to do. This is why we have hundreds of extra rules that you really don't find in there so you'll understand how to put it into practice. And Jesus looks at him and says, don't you know how to put the word of God into practice? Have you not read? And he goes to this story about David. This fascinating story because David is fleeing from Saul. 
And he's left with his men, empty-handed from Gibeath. And he's escaping Saul, and he gets to Nob, just north of Jerusalem. And the men are hungry. David's hungry. And they're not hungry like you and I are hungry. You know, it's not a like, oh, it's 12.15 and I haven't had lunch. I'm hungry. They've been toiling. They've been hiding from Saul. They've been running around. They've had no food. They are legitimately very, very hungry people. And David has these men that he cares for, and he's got to figure out how to feed them. So he goes to the tabernacle at Nod. And he asks for food, and the priest that's there tells him what? The only food I've got is the bread of the presence. Now, if we don't understand what the bread of the presence is, we don't understand why Jesus has gone here, and we don't understand what the problem is. You see, the bread of the presence was the bread that was baked fresh and hot and taken to the the golden table in the holy place and set there for God. And after the fresh loaves had been placed there, the priests were allowed to take the week-old bread that had been there from last week, And they were allowed to eat it, but only the priests. So as David and his men come into this tabernacle, and they're hungry, and they need to be fed, and they have a need that they just don't know how to meet any other way, and they talk to the priest, what does the priest have to offer them? Chick-fil-A was closed. No legal food. All he's got is this bread of the presence. And he even asks David, you know, are your men clean? Are they ceremonially clean? And David says, yes, they are. And that's the only question he asks. And he takes his bread of the presence, which was not lawful. Jesus even said it wasn't lawful for them to eat it. And what does he do? He gives it to David and his men and they eat it. Can you think of any Old Testament stories where somebody violated God's law and paid for it immediately? Remember when they were moving the Ark of the Covenant? Reached up and touched the covenant. God struck him dead. What does he do to David and his men? You don't even see any words of correction to David and his men. And Jesus is going to this because he's making a point. He's making a very important point that the Pharisees never get. Jesus is pointing at this Old Testament story and saying what they did was okay because compassion and mercy is more important than ritual. Now, it's not more important than obeying God. But in that case, as he looks at this, he's saying they had a very real need. And this priest made a very real exception that was okay with me. Because the ritual is there and there's a purpose for it. And there is a picture that it's supposed to give. But it's not supposed to be such that it makes it difficult for my people. And David had a real need. And so... He gave him that bread, and they ate, and God never judged them for it. Because the showing of compassion was okay. And so as you see this story unfolding, you begin to think, okay, well, if it's okay for the high priest to give David and his men food, Jesus is using it to say that it's okay for me to give my disciples food as we're going through the fields. So who has Jesus equated himself with in that story so far? The high priest. How can he do that? Because he is the great high priest. And he's pointing that out in a very vivid way to these Pharisees who knew the story. And they knew the players. And they knew exactly what he was saying. Not only that, but who else is Jesus identifying himself with? And it's the first time here in Mark, but it won't be the last time. Whose people were in need when they went to the tabernacle? David's people. They needed food. And David was able to procure what they needed. And as the disciples walked through that field, whose people were in need of food? Jesus' people. Could Jesus have turned around if it was really unlawful and said to Peter, Peter, you can't do that, it's the Sabbath. 
Does Jesus ever correct his disciples for taking the grain? He's taking care of his people. And so in that way, in using this story, instead of just authoritatively saying, I can do whatever I want on the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus Christ has said, when you think of the high priest, the Son of God, that's who you're thinking of, the ultimate high priest. When you think of David, think of David's greater son who is coming, the Messiah, who's going to take care of his people the same way David took care of his. All of this is flying around in the minds of the Pharisees. And so the Pharisees are looking and saying, oh, we got it wrong. We need to change what we think. Is that what happens in the story? Keep this in mind. The Pharisees have watched miracles take place. They have heard Jesus Christ's teaching. They have been totally unable to refute his teaching. And as he brings them this picture from their own scriptures, he's basically saying to them, I am God, that's why I can do these things. The Sabbath belongs to... Who was the Sabbath? Who did the Sabbath belong to? It was God's Sabbath. He said, I gave it to my people to be a blessing to them. So if it's my Sabbath, I can do with it as I please. Then almost, oh, is that arrogant? No, that's a God. God can do as he pleases. And so we look at this and we say, well, what's Jesus, why is he doing this? Well, look over at Matthew's account. If you flip over to Matthew chapter 12, Matthew gives us even more of what he does here. Not only does he do this, but he goes on and he tells the Pharisees, have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, greater than the temple is here. As he's trying to explain to them why this was not a Sabbath violation, you you understand what happens with the priest, don't you? What did the priest do on the Sabbath? Did the priest take the Sabbath off? The priests were offering sacrifices on the Sabbath, as we read through Scripture. And they are never, ever condemned for doing that because that was God's purpose for them, even on the Sabbath, to make those sacrifices and do those things. And Jesus said, you know, they're held guiltless. And then he looks at them and says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. In the Jewish mindset, what was the only thing greater than the temple in Jerusalem? Because the temple in Jerusalem was the dwelling place of the presence of God. And the only thing greater than the temple was God himself. And Jesus looks at them and says, it's okay for my disciples to be doing this because I am the great high priest. I am the son of David, the Messiah. And as you look at this, you need to remember that something, or probably better translated, someone greater than the temple is here, and that's me. And do the Pharisees get that? Are they going to like that? So he looks at them and he says those things, but he doesn't stop there. He goes on further and he says to them, Later, that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Look at verse 27 of Mark. He said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, and man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He looks at him and says, This is the purpose of the Sabbath. To the great teachers of his day. To us as we decide what are we going to do with these things as we come to the end of this teaching. But he said, The Sabbath was made to bless man. Man wasn't made to bless me through the Sabbath. Not only that, it was made to give my people their weekly rest. It was made to uh, give my people the opportunity to come away from their labors and remember their relationship with me. And so all of this is behind us as Jesus tells them the Sabbath was made for man. And this great truth about the Sabbath is often what we miss. When we say, should we be giving God a day of the week? And we do it on Sunday. We'll talk about that in just a moment, but we only have a moment. But as we go through that, should, are we even obligated to do that? 
you know, can't can I worship God on the golf course? Ever heard that? I was going to say hunting too, but it hits a little too close to home, you know. But you know, how do you? People say that all the time, and Jesus is basically looking and said, "The Sabbath was made for you to bring you apart because you need this. You desperately need to come away from your work and be in the presence of God and worship and be taught and be what you ought to be in Christ and meet one another's needs if there's needs there that need to be met." And the Pharisees had missed and turned this divine blessing into a dreadful burden. Because all the things they added to it. And Jesus looks and said, it was never meant to be a burden. It was meant to be a blessing. And that's why I am the Lord of the Sabbath. He's already told them one greater than the temple is here. In case they didn't get that, he finishes this whole teaching by saying, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath belonged to whom? Genesis chapter 2, the Sabbath was God's. When Jesus Christ looks at them and says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, there is no doubt. But in case they missed it, he also grabs the phrase from Daniel chapter 7 where he says, The Son of Man, the Son of Man, the designation Daniel gave to the Messiah. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. That's me. Now, how do you think the Pharisees are going to react to that? We don't have to wonder. We look at the end of this passage and we find out exactly what they're doing. You look at chapter 3 and verse 6. The Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him to destroy him. They want to kill him. They want to get rid of Jesus because he's not doing that. And in order to do that, we're just going to very briefly look at chapter 3 because it's just the, the trap that they set for Jesus. It's the test of the Sabbath truth. Does Jesus really believe this when the rubber meets the road? What will he do when he's tempted to do something that shouldn't be done on the Sabbath? You look at chapter 3, verse 1. It says, And he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So probably the next Sabbath, the way it falls in all the gospel accounts, the the, the Pharisees are setting him up, and they they go to the synagogue. Which synagogue we don't know, probably the synagogue in Capernaum. But they go to the synagogue, and there's there a man with a withered hand. Now the question is, did he go on his own, or did the Pharisees take him? Because they're there to watch. Now, maybe they knew he was going to be there. Maybe he went there on his own. But the interesting thing about this man, when we look at this story, this man never talks to Jesus. He never asks to be healed. He's a participant and Jesus' object lesson, once again, for, the, for the, the Pharisees that are there. And so what we find out here, Jesus is going to test, pass the test of the, the Sabbath truth. Jesus is going to teach truth. Those who teach the gospel and who teach truth are going to be criticized. They're going to be watched. If you share the gospel, you're going to be watched. The Pharisees are watching him, and they're watching him to accuse him. They want to see him do something wrong. They want to criticize what he's doing. And so they're watching because this man's condition... It was, the word to, of withered hand means atrophy. His, his hand was all shriveled up. Luke tells us it was his right hand. How many of you are right-handed? Some of you are sleeping already. Most of us. The majority of people are right-handed. There's a few left-handed, but most are right-handed. So if your right hand shriveled up and you're right-handed, how do you work? How do you make a living? How do you get things done? You know, those of you who are right-handed, try for the next day to do everything with your left hand. You want to feel uncoordinated, you want to have difficulty getting things done, and don't use your right hand to help you because it's withered up. So here's this man with that condition in the synagogue. Jesus sees this man with the withered hand, and the Pharisees are watching because they're thinking, this is not a life-threatening disease. Jesus does not, you remember the rules? Jesus does not have to heal him on the Sabbath. Could Jesus have 
healed him on Sunday, not their Sabbath. Could he have waited? Why doesn't he? Why, why does he want all this difficulty? Because he's about to teach truth about the Lord of the Sabbath and who he is. And about why all these things were established. So as they're watching him, setting him up, they're watching Jesus desperately. They've set a trap for him and Luke says, and he knew their thoughts. Because sometimes I read these things and I say, Jesus, just wait till the next day. Don't do it. Don't cause all this trouble for you and your disciples. Can you imagine being one of the disciples? I guarantee you Peter's thinking, why doesn't he just do this tomorrow? You know, Peter's got, a, he's got an opinion for everything. But here's Jesus, he's getting ready, and he knows it's a trap. And rather than avoiding it, he seeks it because he's going to push home the truth. And that's the second truth we're going to learn here in this passage in chapter 3. The truth will lead to confrontation. If you teach the truth, if you believe the truth, if you share the truth, you will have confrontation. Are there people in this town, in your place of business, in your neighborhood, that if you share the truth with them, they are going to give you a different opinion? They are going to very heatedly give you a different opinion at times. And Jesus is no different as he's giving the truth. He looks at this man with the withered hand, knowing what's going to happen, and he says, come here. Then the man comes forward. And then he says to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath day to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And it's interesting. He says, but they were silent. And Matthew throws more uh, onto that. He act, it's actually the first question that asked by the Pharisees. They asked Jesus, is it lawful to, to heal this man on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And in Matthew chapter 12, verse 11, he says to them, Which of you, if a sheep falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So Jesus tells the story again. And he basically says, if your sheep's in trouble, you're going to help him. So it's lawful for me to do a good thing to somebody who's not a sheep, who's one of God's children. On the Sabbath day, I can do that. It's lawful. And then he probably picks up with Matthew's story there. And that's where he inserts. So is it lawful to do good and to heal on the Sabbath or isn't it? And suddenly the arrogant Pharisees are silent. How do you answer that? And Jesus is doing this as a teaching lesson. That compassion and caring for those in need are so much more important than the rituals that these Pharisees have placed upon people. And so he looks around, and it's very interesting, and we don't have the time this morning, but he looks around at that group of Pharisees and tells us that for one of the first times in the scriptures, he is angry with the Pharisees. Why is he so angry? It says, if we look at this text, he says here in verse 5, and he looked around with them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And you can find out a little bit more about why. If you look, look at Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 later this afternoon. It talks about there being a rest, and the rest that God has for his people. And it's tied to the Sabbath, and it's tied to looking forward to the rest that we have in Jesus Christ. And he looks, and he says in the midst of that, don't harden your hearts like the people of Israel did, because they are going to miss my rest. And Jesus Christ looks at the Pharisees and says, my people are missing my rest because you're teaching them things that aren't the truth. You need to know the truth, you need to know what God said, you need to follow what he said, but throw away the stuff that doesn't apply. Don't let other people add burdens to what the truth is supposed to be saying in your lives. And Jesus is looking, and he's looking because he's saying, these people who ought to be the spiritual leaders have the hardness of heart that's going to send them to hell. And he was grieved. He was angry. But there's one man that's going to benefit from that. He looks at that man with a withered hand. He says, stretch out your hand. You want to know why I can be so indignant and angry as the Son of Man, as the Lord of the Sabbath? Because I have all power, he says, stretch out your hand, and the man is immediately healed. And again, 
You look at that and you think, that ought to change the Pharisee's mind. This man with a withered hand suddenly has a fully functioning, honest-to-goodness hand right there. Jesus just healed him immediately. And it says, and then they went out and they found the Herodians. Now, what is so remarkable about that? We don't know much about the Herodians, but we know this. They were politically minded. They were politically generated. They didn't care much for the spiritual end of the, of the things of the Jews and Israel. But they sure did want to get in with Rome and keep their power. They were the enemies of the Pharisees. But we see that classic time here with the enemy of the enemy is my friend. And the Pharisees go out and they plot with the Herodians on how to kill Jesus Christ. The Sabbath. What should it do? How should it work? What do we do with it? It leads me to this question at the end, because I had to ask myself this. What are we supposed to do with this teaching? Is there any application for us today? Is Sunday the same as the Sabbath? Or should it operate in our lives in roughly the same way? Well, let's answer a few questions. Number one, the Sabbath was made for man. How many men or women are in here? Man in a general sense, mankind. You know, so it was made for us. It was instituted by God for rest in relationship. How many of us need rest in relationship? In relationship mostly with him. It was used as a day to attend worship and teaching in the synagogue. A day to come apart. The early church moved this to the first day of the week. The early church, remember, the church that moved it from Saturday to Sunday were Jewish Christians. Why did they move it? Colossians tells us that even the Sabbath looks forward to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Christ was raised from the dead on Sunday, and they moved it from the last day of the week to the first day of the week, and they began getting together, and they would worship, and they would have their teaching, and they would gather together as Christians on Sunday as God's day. It became known as the Lord's day. Is it the Lord's day today? You know, most of us... I stand guilty sometimes. As a preacher, that seems horrifying. Sometimes we feel real good about ourselves because we gave God an hour on Sunday morning, and if we were really spiritual, we came back for prayer meeting. Now, don't go that far. But, you know, we gave God an hour. And sometimes, if we're not careful, if we really want to feel holy, we start adding it up. Well, you know, it takes me 20 minutes to get from home to church and 20 minutes to get back. So I gave God an hour and 40 minutes this Sunday. When God said, number one, it's all supposed to belong to him. But number two, he said, set aside a day for me. He didn't say set aside an hour for me. He didn't say set aside an hour and a half. He said, set aside a day for me to get things clarified, to come apart from your labors and rest, to do what you need to do, to get your heart fixed upon me. This is my day. Are you willing to give him a day? You know, and, and again, we do it on Sunday because we remember what Jesus Christ did. And we remember the fact that he's still promising us a day of rest. Isn't it wonderful that when we think of eternity, he says, enter into my rest. Now, you're not probably going to be sitting on your porch rocking all the time, okay? But it's going to be a rest to our souls. It's going to be a wonderful day. And it it pictures that as we do this. So, So what do we do with this? Can we commit to gathering together with God's people for worship and teaching on God's day? Not let other things infringe upon our Sunday. We've got a, a society that wants to tear apart our Sundays. They will give you every excuse in the world not to be here on Sunday. What are you going to do with it? No, number two, can we commit to serving others and meeting their needs on Sundays? Why do people move from church to church to church often? That church is not meeting my needs. Sunday's not supposed to be about my needs. 
That's what Jesus is teaching over and over again with these stories. It's about me meeting needs of other people. That's the legitimate use of our time on a Sunday. Are we willing to take care of our needs with God and then meet needs of other folks around us, whatever they may be? Are we willing to do that with our time? And we ought to commit to setting aside a day from normal labors to reflect on a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath. You ever get so busy during the week, you just, oh, I wanted to spend more time in the Word. I wanted to spend more time in prayer, but this happened and that happened. And God knew that would happen. That's why he said, give me a day. Give me a day to come apart and be different. I'm still learning what that means. I don't have it all down. I know one thing it means for me. As a young guy, I used to do all kinds of stuff on Saturday nights. I was so exhausted on Sunday morning that I came in and I was one of those people that were like this in the pews, you know, hoping not to be seen falling asleep. You know what? And my wife kind of, I think she kind of laughs at me sometimes, but I try not to do hardly anything on Saturday evenings anymore. Now, I'm not Jewish, and it's not sun up and sun down, but I know for me to have my heart prepared to be ready for Sunday, if I cloud it up with all kinds of things on Saturday evening, I'm in trouble. What are you willing to do to be prepared for the Lord's Day? I don't know what it is in your life. And I'm not going to give you 39 rules like the Mishnah, and this is what you need to do. But ought we not consider God set apart a day for himself? And he gave it to us for our good. What are we doing with that day? Let's pray. Father, we stand amazed when we see the teaching of Jesus, the way he brings deep truths right to the surface, and even the stories that he uses to help him plant them into our hearts and minds. God, I pray that you'll help us to consider what are we doing with our time. And Lord, though we're not Jewish and we don't meet on Saturday and all the law doesn't necessarily apply to us yet, you established a day, a day that was yours that you gave to us for our benefit and our good to come aside and to come apart. And Lord, help us to consider seriously what does that mean in our lives and our relationship with you. Help us to be willing to do whatever we need to do in order to live lives that not only glorify you, but draw closer to you every opportunity that we have. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.